If you have your Bible, and I hope you brought it, turn to uh, Ephesians in the New Testament. If you don't know where Ephesians is, then ask a neighbor. No, don't ask a neighbor. Well, you can ask a neighbor. Um, I, I preached on Ephesians maybe a, a six weeks ago or so. And I think at that time I mentioned uh, usually what I always mention when I preach on Ephesians. You find it, uh, you find those, one of those four books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, they're in, in that order. And the way that I remember that order is GE, Power Company, GEPC, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I don't know where I picked that up. Someone told it to me decades ago, and it has stuck ever since. Uh, so find one of those books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians is tucked there in the middle. We're starting um, a new series on Ephesians today. If you uh, missed reading through the Bible while we did our, or if you missed reading Ephesians while we read through the Bible last year, this is going to be a great opportunity to read these six chapters um, we'll spend five, six weeks on it, working our way through it. And one of the things that I love about this book is um, there are some very grand statements that are made. And it's fun just to kind of think about some of these amazing statements that are made about, about God and, and, um, and God's power and God's spirit. And what we're going to talk about today is God's purpose, God's purpose for, uh, for you and for his church. And what I'm hoping to do today is to, to provide this, this kind of general overview, not of the entire book, but of this, this purpose that God gives to us. And then over the next several weeks, we're going to see how uh, God's purpose for us shapes how we see everything in our life. Um, that truly matters, our family, our relationships, your very self, how God's purpose shapes um, how you see this church, Hope Church, how you see prayer, how um, it, it just, what Ephesians does is it helps you to see that God has chosen you to, to be different from the world um, around us, and there's a particular purpose for that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, let's look at verses 9 through 14. We're going to talk about God's purpose. I'm going to give you three words or three phrases um, as guidelines for our talk today. God's purpose given God's purpose embraced, and God's purpose lived out. So here we are, verse 9, chapter 1. Now, one thing about Ephesians, before I start, chapter 1, largely is made up of two very long sentences that Paul writes. And in our English translations... Uh, we break those long sentences up into smaller sentences. We're going to start in verse 9, and it's kind of halfway through 
a English sentence, and it's certainly about halfway through one of these really long sentences that the Apostle Paul writes. So we're starting mid-sentence here in verse 9. He made known to us. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. God's purpose given God's purpose accepted, God's purpose, or embraced, and God's purpose lived out. Let's start with the first, God's purpose given. So Paul gives a statement in chapter 1 that our purpose comes not from ourselves, but from God. And he says it right there in verse 12. Let's look at that again. He says that God chose us in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. That's your purpose. You exist for the praise of God's glory. And you might ask this morning, well, why does God get to determine our purpose? Well, it's because God is the one who created you. God is the one who created all that there is. All creation belongs to God. This is what the scriptures tell us. Psalm 24, 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Job, God speaks for himself. Everything under heaven belongs to me. So God gives his rationale for why we exist for God's purpose, and that is because God says, I made it all, and it all belongs to me. Okay. Sometimes we can act like God is a very hands-off owner. That yes, everything theoretically belongs to God, but practically, are we really to act like he owns this world? Are we really to act like that? Isn't this world given for our use today, you might ask? How about our very lives? Don't in some practical way our lives belong to us in some practical way? Doesn't your life belong to yourself? So Paul, uh, when he writes to a different set of Christians in, uh, in Corinth, his answer to that question is no. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, you aren't to do whatever you please. You aren't to say whatever you please. You aren't to treat others however you please. You aren't to do as you please, however you please with your body. So here's um, one, one part of Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. 
Um, Paul writes, do you not know what your bodies, what they really are? You might think of them as flesh and blood, but no, they're, they're temples of the Holy Spirit. They're temples of God who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. And even more so, you have a purpose. God lives in you. You're a temple. You belong to God. God wants to live in you so that others can see him. Because God is bringing all creation up to this dramatic conclusion, which Paul writes about in Ephesians, verses 9 through 10. Let's look at that again. There's this dramatic conclusion that God is bringing all things up to. said he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. In other words, this, is a, this was a purpose that was very pleasing to God. And what is it? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is this, this, this great conclusion that God is purposing. Now, what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every part of creation, every creature, every person will all live in harmony with Christ one day. I don't think that's what that means. Uh, I don't think this is pointing to some universal salvation that, that one day every human soul that has ever lived will be there with Jesus. I don't think that's what this means. Here's another way of thinking about this. Um, it said all things are summed up in Christ. Just as in a long math addition problem, and I, I'm already very aware that that phrase right there has turned some of you off. Do not come here to think about long math addition problems, but just as in a long math addition problem, all the numbers point to the sum, all creation will one day point to the glory of Christ. That is where God is taking his creation. Or one day, every part of creation is pointing to the sum, and that is Jesus Christ. But we're not there yet. We're not at that point yet. And so before we get to God's purpose accepted, we need to talk about God's purpose resisted. And if I were to add a a bullet point. Um, it would have been this one because I'm actually going to spend some time talking about God's purpose being resisted because it is very possible and indeed common for people to resist God's purpose of pointing to the glory of Christ and rather pointing to their own or our own or my own glory. And usually this doesn't happen by way of kind of conscious defiance against God. No, God, I'm going to rebel against you, and I'm going to live for my own glory. But rather, this comes unconsciously, without being aware of our resistance. And so we have to really think through how we can be resistant to God's purpose. Walter Brueggemann, um, he's not a scholar that I mention very, very often, um, because probably there's some things that Walter Brueggemann writes that many of us in the room would, would not completely agree with. But I want to talk about one thing that I think he gets really right. Um, so Walter Brueggemann is um, 
He's regarded as a um, very influential Old Testament scholar um, from the last half century or so. And one thing that he, I think he definitely gets right is how cultures and societies can create purposes for them, for themselves that, that actually are distorted for God's, from God's purpose, uh, for us. And, and one thing that he writes really well on, pers- persuasively on, is how there is this slow descent. If you look at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, there's a slow descent of the nation of Israel going from this oppressed nation during uh, the time of Moses, during their slavery in Egypt, um, there's a slow descent from the Israelites going from the oppressed to the oppressor in the Old Testament um, through the, the time of King Solomon. And if you're familiar with the storyline, you'll know that within 400 years or so, uh, the 400 years or so between their slavery in Egypt and their golden age in the Promised Land, the Israelites went from baking bricks of clay for the Egyptians to stockpiling uh, bricks of gold for themselves during Solomon's time. Um, one of the staggering statements about the affluence of the Israelites during the time of Solomon, we can read from Second uh, Chronicles, a staggering statement here. Let's read this. It says, all of King Solomon's drinking vessels, this is the king of Israel here, right? All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. All the utensils in the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Silver was not thought to be worth anything in the days of Solomon. Another passage in our scripture says that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Now, none of that is necessarily wrong, by the way. It's not wrong that... Solomon was eating on gold utensils. It's not wrong that silver might have been as common as stones in Jerusalem. Nothing wrong with that. But when we begin to author our own purpose, what tends to happen is we begin to see other people either as assets that help us achieve that purpose or as hindrances that oppose our purpose. And one of the ways that we see that within the nation of Israel, it's an unmistakable way, is how they began to treat the poor among them. And I need to unpack this a little bit with a couple of examples from the prophets in the Old Testament. See, one of the prophets um, that lived during Israel's time of greatest prosperity was the prophet Amos. Now, is the, during Amos's uh, life, the Israelites enjoyed a time of great national security, They were the most powerful nation militarily, and because of that, economic trade flourished throughout the land of Israel. Uh, Travel was safe, so other nations engaged in trade with through the lands of Israel and became very, very prosperous. Israel might have interpreted this time as a sign of God's blessing to them, because isn't it? Isn't it? At least it is for me. Common to think, oh, everything's going fine. God, God must be pretty happy with me right now. Things are going fine. Um, Israelites very well may have been thinking the same thing. Now, that's one of the great errors, by the way, when you think, ah, oh, all is well. God must be happy with something that I'm doing. Or, oppositely of that, oh, nothing in my life is going well. 
Nothing's going right. God has to be angry or upset about something that I'm doing. It's one of the greatest errors that we can think today. Tie God's favor, approval of us based on our performance and our circumstances. Uh, The Israelites uh, might have thought that they're receiving God's approval, but here's what Amos instead tells them. This is from Amos chapter 2, 6, and 7. This is what the Lord says, and he's not going to give a word of approval. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Now, what I want us to notice is the real significance of it. It's here at the very end of verse 7. Father and son use the same girl, and so what happens through what the, the actions of the Israelites here? They profane my holy name. So it's, it's one thing to be mistreating the, the, the poor and the neglected of the society, but then God really unveils what's going on. Is, and by doing so, they are not living for the praise of God's glory, as Paul writes in Ephesians. Rather, they are profaning God's name and glory. Notice how people were viewed under this time of economic prosperity. People were seen as either contributors or competitors. And if you weren't contributing to the resources, you were competing for the resources. And if you were competing for resources... Well, then by golly, you are someone to be taken advantage of. Taken advantage of. So that's what's really going on here during uh, the time of Amos. God says, you're really profaning my name. And uh, for us, we might think, well, of course, of course, we shouldn't be all that surprised that this happened. Because hadn't the Israelites completely forsaken God and set up religious shrines and and become polytheistic and started worshiping all the other gods of the nations around them? Yes, but it's not as simple as that. Because they didn't think that they were doing that. And so we have to look at another prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Um, this is Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah writes... Verse 2, 58, Isaiah is giving this message from God to the Israelites. And this is God speaking to the Israelites here. Day after day, they seek me. Day after day, my people, they're seeking me. They seem eager to know my ways. This does not look like some, some polytheistic, idolatrous nation, right? They're seeking God. They're seeking his ways. At least they seem to be eager to know my ways. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near to them. And then they ask, why have we fasted, they say, yet, God, you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves, and yet you have not noticed? See, the things to be, seem to be incongruous, God. We are seeking you, the Israelites are saying. We are seeking you. We're we're fasting. We're praying. But it doesn't seem like that you're listening to us. 
So here's what God answers. God answers, or here's how God answers. God answers, um, verse 3, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to lose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? And then verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And if you do those things, God says, look what he, look what he writes. Then your light, your light, the way that you shine, will break forth like the dawn. And they will be living for the praise of the glory of God. It's like Paul would say in Ephesians. Your light will shine if you do that. You'll, you'll be living for the praise of my glory. Now, how could this happen? How could this nation go from clay brick makers who are oppressed by the Egyptians to the most economically prosperous nation where silver was like stones because it was so common. Well, Brueggemann suggests, and I think he's right, that the Israelites begin fashioning God in their own image instead of seeing their image fashioned by God. And they had rejected God's purpose for them, and instead they created their own purpose. And then they thought that God was bound to their purposes. God, we're seeking you, we're praying to you, we're turning to you. But it doesn't seem like you're answering us. And God says, yeah, because you've come up with your own purpose for you. You've turned away from my purpose. My purpose is that you live in a way that praises my glory. So what's the caution for us? Well, I think the caution is how do you view your life and how do you view your faith? Is your life full of your own pursuits? Where in practice you say to God, God, I will worship you, but I, but maybe in reality your worship, my worship, our worship is a veiled way to get God's stamp of approval on our life. To, to secure God's favor so that we go about our purpose, God is saying, all right, go with that. You're worshiping me all is well. Is that how we see our life and our faith? That's the caution. The primary way of resisting God's purpose is the belief that God exists for us instead of us existing for God. That's how we resist God's purpose. Which brings us to God's purpose embraced. How do you embrace God's purpose? How do you embrace a purpose that, at first glance, seems to be very directed to someone else, to God? How do you embrace that purpose when... Very much so during the day, it seems like this is, this is, God, you've given me this life and I, I want to do good with it, but I, I want to be, I want to be pleased, right? 
How do you embrace God's purpose when it's directed towards him? Well, you might think one way is to embrace, to look towards the rewards that God has for us. And that's part of it. That's part of it. Paul talks about an inheritance. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul mentions an inheritance several times in, uh, in chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. Um, in him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And indeed, we are promised an inheritance. Last week, we, we looked at the renewal of all creation that is uh, shown at the, the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, this, this incredible renewal of all creation that we get to live in, that we will enjoy forever and ever. God promises a land to his people as an inheritance. And yes, indeed, we can look forward to that inheritance, celebrate it, embrace it. That's part of our inheritance. But in that, that verse, if you're following in, in your little note sheet, you, you wrote at the end of verse 14, uh, to the praise of his glory. Because remember, that's our purpose, the praise of God's glory. And I had you write in his glory for a reason. You see, we, we see the, the word inheritance in, in, in our scriptures and we think, oh, that's for us. And in part it is. But the verb uh, connected with inheritance, I, I got to tell you this, the verb connected with this word inheritance, it can either mean, one of two things, it can either mean to assign an inheritance to someone, or to receive an inheritance. It can mean either thing. It can mean both. So I want us to look at inheritance one more time. Look at verse 11. Look for inheritance in this verse. It says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him. And you're thinking, I don't see inheritance in verse 11 at all unless you may have another translation in front of you, and you might see the word inheritance. The reason why here, that the verse that we just had up on the screen, the reason why you didn't see the word inheritance in it is because the words for inheritance and the word for predestined, they are so intricately linked that the NIV translation, the one that we, I just had for uh, on the screen for you there, they're so intricately linked that it doesn't even include the word inheritance in there. Let me tell you the best way to understand verse 11. The best way to understand verse 11 is this. There is an inheritance as God has predestined us according to his plan. There is an inheritance as God has predestined us. Remember those two words, inheritance and predestined. They're so intricately linked in their meanings. There is an inheritance as God has predestined us according to his purpose. Now, if his purpose is that we are to the praise of God's glory, that might help us to understand 
Is this talking about an inheritance that God is assigning to us? Or is this an inheritance that God is receiving for himself? Is God giving an inheritance or receiving an inheritance? Remember, this is an inheritance that is to the praise of God's glory. So many people believe this means that God claims us as his inheritance. Look at the revised version, verse 11. In whom we were made a heritage. We were made a heritage for who? For God, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Let me suggest that while, yes, indeed, God has a wonderful inheritance for us. And verse 11 really says, God has predestined you because he wants you for his inheritance. And does it really make a difference? I think so, and here's why it matters. Throughout humankind's history, the history of religion can be summed up by one statement, man's pursuit of God. That's what world religion is all about, man's pursuit of God. But Christianity is the religion that actually turns that around and says, actually, it is God's pursuit of man. It is God pursuing you Instead of you hoping that one day you might find God if you play your cards well, if you act right, if you do the right thing, maybe you'll find God. No, the hope of our faith. God is so good to us. The hope of our faith is this, that God claims you as his inheritance. When God thought about what would satisfy him most deeply, he thought of you. That is why God would claim you as his inheritance. God loved you. Why? Because that was his plan. He loves you. Why? Just because he loves you, because that was his plan. And he made you for himself. How how do you accept, how do you embrace God's purpose for you, it begins with knowing that the God who gives you the purpose for existing for him is the very God who loves you so much that he wants you for his inheritance. And then you rest in that. You say, okay, God, if you want me that badly, I'm yours. I'm yours. And I'm going to rest in you. It's like St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And finally, when you embrace and accept that purpose for you, now we can talk about God's purpose lived out. How do you live out God's purpose? Well, God's purpose gives you your true identity. Let's talk about what your true identity is not. You are not primarily a producer. You are not primarily a brick maker. That's what the Egyptians saw the Israelites as. 
as brick makers. Their, their value, the Egyptians saw their value solely in their productivity. And you are not one primarily that just produces. You're not one primarily that, that simply pro- contributes to the gross national, gross national product. Your value is not in your productivity. So you're not primarily a producer, and you're not primarily a competitor. You are not primarily a competitor with others, because ultimately producers are competitors. If productivity is your purpose, then you will always be fighting yourself in competition with others who find productivity is their main purpose. And you will feel pitted against others in some way, either competing for the the favor or the esteem of your supervisor or your employer, your company, or you'll be competing for bonuses, you'll be competing for promotions, you'll be tempted to use others for your own advantage, just as the Israelites during the high period of Solomon and Amos were using the poor for their advantage. You're not a producer. You're not a competitor. What are you primarily? Just as a point of review, you're God's chosen inheritance. Do you see how this frees you from seeing your identity in your production and what you do, what you produce at work? Your value is found in the fact that you are one who God freely chose to love. Freely. And you are one created for the glory of God. Think about that for a moment as we we finish up our, our sermon here. You are one that God has created to be a sign of his glory. And how do you live that out? Well, you live that out every day by doing what you normally do. And fortunately, this isn't rocket science, how you live out what you normally do for the glory of God. What do you do? Do you manage others? Do you teach others? Do you process data at your company? Do you clean buildings? Do you study different subjects at school? Are you a student? Uh, do you make business transactions, sell services? Well, you do that, except you do that for the glory of God. So if you're making that business transaction, if you're seeing someone to use to your own advantage or to exploit, or if you're seeing someone as a competitor to defeat, well, then you've gone off course, right? If you're processing data, for your company, but you're manipulating that data dishonestly for the benefit of your company, then you've gone off course. If you're a student, oh my gosh, I did this all the time, seeing other students as threats to my happiness. Uh, and then you've gone off course, right? See, more important than the sale or the data analysis 
or the leadership that you provide or the management that you provide or the service that you provide. More important than that is working in a way that shows there is this God and he chose me for him. He chose me to show his glory. And then God says, whatever you do, whatever you do, just do it for my glory so that others can see. Because God is working creation to one day where everything will sum up, will point to, will add up, direct towards the glory of Jesus Christ. So I invite you this morning to hear this purpose that God has for you and to embrace it and to achieve it. And God says, if you want to live for me, there's no, there's no test that you must ace. There's, there's no knowledge that you must acquire. There's no proficiency that you have to demonstrate. All you have to do is you have to rely on my son, Jesus Christ, to follow him, to trust in him. And God says, I will take you wherever you are. And I will love you and I will never leave you. I invite you to receive God's purpose for you now. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you that You have made us, and you've made us for yourself. And when we search our hearts and we know the restless feelings, we we recognize that there's nothing in this world that can that can fill that that yearning, that that restlessness. There's nothing in this world. There's nothing here on earth that can satisfy that that hunger in our hearts but you have created us for yourself so that you can fill that hunger, so that you can satisfy, so that we can know our true identity, and that is as your beloved ones that you have claimed for your very own. Lord, thank you. We pray that even now you would hear us, you would receive us, you would receive us despite our hearts that that sometimes we admit Focused on you, sometimes we admit they're, they're focused on our own, our own desires. Lord, thank you for receiving us just as we are. Thank you also that you never leave us the way that we are, but you give us your Holy Spirit so that we will be changed, so that, so that our hearts will grow more like yours. Our actions will more reflect the actions of Christ so that Through our daily life, we indeed are able to live for the praise of your glory. We give to you our hearts in worship. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.